This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the heart of Manhattan at Rockefeller Center in Newsstand Studios. Joined, as usual, with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez in person today. How you doing? Good. Yeah? Doing well? Mm-hmm. Great. Got John here with us. How you doing? Doing great. How, how has your customer service uh, experience been these days? It's been good. I, yeah. I can, Well, yes. I had some, been getting good feedback because I'm awesome at my job, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, for gonna, everyone, buy you a mechanical uh, back pattern. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. Um, for everyone that has a spinzol, your I need to make this announcement now because I've seen this too many times. The clear plastic bowl that goes on top is meant to come off. You are supposed to clean under that. Um, so if you can't get it off, try running a little warm water to dissolve what's under there and give it a clean. That's just gross. If you if you can't get it off, that's like I'm just imagining someone like not changing their underwear for so long that they can't get it off. Yeah, I had that call last night. I have nice. to do it again with them tonight, yeah. Nice. All right. Yep. All right. Uh, joined in our uh, faraway booth by Jackie Molecules. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Uh, where are you this Where are you today? Where? Where? I'm in L.A. now. I know the fun The fun times of me being in the new city every week are probably over. I'm I have just to say, home in L.A. I like L.A., though. I do. I like L.A. You do? I do. I do. I feel like you're always ragging on it. I rag yes. on every place. Listen, because he's like, jealous. It's, it's like this. It's like my wife's like, you make fun of the music I listen to. I was like, I make fun of all music. I make fun of it all. You know what I mean? It's like I like. I think LA is. I mean, I, I could never live there because uh, you know my family will never. You know, certain members of my family will never ever let me move. But I like LA. I love New York now. I decided yesterday that I like New York again. Yeah. Okay. We'll I like. Change. I like being in New York. I don't know. I don't know. Well, let's bring uh, Joe Hazen. Joe Hazen running the panels here. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing great. How you doing? All right. How do you feel about New York? I love New York. I've been here for 21 years, and um, you know, I'm raising a family. And who knows? Yeah. Maybe we'll stay. Who knows? But yeah. but also, um, Happy International Women's Day. Oh, nice. Happy International Women's Day. Nice. Yeah. I don't know why. Suddenly, I'm okay with New York again. I don't know why. Right. I was walking down the street, and I was like, you know what? I'm back. Because uh, for like a couple of years now, I've just been like, oh, crap on this place. That's exactly how I feel every day. There are two piles of human feces on my block, and I, I, it, I just die inside. And then somebody raided the empty building next door, took out, you know, used big fryer oil thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been sitting in this abandoned building you for mean, five like a, years. mean like a cube-tainer. Yeah, 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 yeah. And dumped it all over the sidewalk. Oh, nice. And nobody is cleaning it up, so it's just like festering oil. Let me, guess who, so... let me guess who cleaned it up. No one. Your dog. I am very good about having her avoid that, but man. I guess. Hey, listen, it's not that New York's any cleaner because it's still a giant filth pit. We're having issues with this kind of stuff right now. If you are a human being and you visit our fair city, don't litter food. Don't litter food. Don't litter food. Please don't litter food. Don't break glass in the streets either. Don't break glass in the street. But listen. Yeah, when you come to my neighborhood and go see the basketball game, like, don't litter on my block either. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, listen, here's the deal. First of all. Like, we have rats. Like, I love this outdoor dining Megillah garbage that people have. Like, the whole idea of it. It's great for business. It, you know, whatever. Someday we'll be the Paris of New York or whatever in the hell we are. I think they're getting rid of the... This. What? Yeah, that's what? what I said. Look it up. Look it up. Look it up. They said uh, it on SNL. Look it up. On SNL, they said it. Yeah, that's where, where Nastasi gets her news. Look it up. I want to know. But then... Um, <laughs> uh, but rats are living underneath those things because they were built by without care for that. So there's rats. So if you litter food, first of all, the rats get much worse. That's one. Two, a lot of us have dogs. Right, Joe? Right? Yes. John, Joe, dogs. 
Guess what dogs eat? Filth off the ground. They, they, they eat the aluminum. Because dogs don't really have as developed a sense of taste as most of us do. It's just they smell it, right? So if there's food on that aluminum foil, they just eat the foil and they choke it down. They don't care that it tastes like aluminum foil because that's not what they're in it for. Whatever. I'm just saying. Under the new proposal, not all outdoor dining would be affected. Umbrellas and other barrier setups that are not considered full house-like structures would still be permitted. Current restaurant sheds would not be grandfathered in under the DOT's plan. But whose proposal is it? And who does it need to pass? Here's the other like little secret. Julie Shipper, director of the Department of Transportation's Open Restaurant Program. All right, so you need to contact Julie Shipper if you have an issue with this. But my, the thing about it is, is that almost nobody did it legally. Like almost nobody. And by legally, yeah. I mean no one respected the distances you need between the like uh, outdoor lamp posts and like providing enough walkway for people to get past whatever i'm not saying we did but i think it's been a net positive what do you think I know, yeah 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 net positive all right so listen patreon listeners call in your questions to 917-410-1507 that's 917-410-1507 we'll take your calls i mean preferably cooking related you know um i guess uh and today is uh is the is the guest list cooking issues because we're going to try to get through some of the questions that we've been behind on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, no tangent Tuesday. It's the, it's the thing. You know, but listen, you can't have <laughs> listen. Taco Tuesday is supposed to be every Tuesday, and we only do the show on Tuesday, so you can't have no tangent Tuesday. Once a month, that's no tangent Tuesday. It's going to be a thing you just watch. Mm. I yeah, I concur to that. Mm. All right, all right. Uh, so uh, let them know who's coming up. Let them know. Uh, let's, let's get all the uh, what's it called out of the way, John. All the stuff. All the announcements. Yeah. So coming up next week, we've got Matt from Kitchen Arts and Letters. So we're going to be ta- uh, discussing classics in the field. Let us know what you would like to talk about, and we'll you know get some uh, good book list tailored to it. After that, we'll have Kenji. A Kenji- little word of advice. Get it to us before Monday so we can get Matt the information on the Monday. It's okay yeah. to, like— it's okay to like bomb me like twenty minutes before the show and figure out, but like, like let's give Matt a little time if you have a question you actually want him to look into. Yes, thank you. Um, but, uh, I'll, I want to tell Nastasia the story about Kitchen Arts and Letters and the guy who swiped that book from you. Uh, Kenji Lopez is, will be on the week after, uh, coming on Monday. Then we got James Hoffman. When you say his name, do you supposed to put the alt or you're not supposed to put the alt? I don't know. I put it there because it's published on everything, so why not? But you didn't just say it. You just said Kenji Lopez, didn't Oh, you? did I? Oh, I meant oh, Kenji Lopez alt. Sorry, meant to say that. Mm-hmm. Try to, yeah. Okay. My bad. Uh, James Hoffman, Adam DiMartino, Oliver Millman, and hopefully Tanya Hopkins coming on. And also remember, we got the Aura King uh, salmon discount and Groven Vine. Check uh, the Patreon post about that. By the way, that olive oil? Good. So good. Delicious. Good yeah, olive oil. Really great product. He's not even paying me to say so. Yeah. Yet. True. True. <laughs> um... But if you aren't a Patreon member, you don't get access to our awesome discounts. So sign up for our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash cooking issues and you can join for as little oh, as $5. he called me last night and he said he had a good time on the show, except he didn't like that you put words in his mouth, Dave. He also put words in my mouth and he called me manic. Okay. So fair's fair in uh, podcast and whatever in the heck else. Yeah. Are right, you going to tell your story? Tell your story. Yeah. So right. Nastasia, we were at Kitchen Arts and Letters the other week and... You know, we're there talking with Matt and everything. And Guess what we're talking about? Pie! Actually, I walk into the store and I'm like, Matt, I'm not here to talk about pie. And then, of course, it ended up happening, but only a little <laughs> bit. But uh, Matt showed Dave this book that Dave really liked and was almost going to buy. And then he was like, no, no, no. I'm gonna, it's going to be my reward to myself, you know, after after I do it. And there were some other people in the store. 
and I guess they were eavesdropping. Oh so they ended God. up buying it out from under Dave when Matt said, you know, it's like, I'll try and, you know, keep this aside for you for when you come back. Yeah, good job. Good and job then he posts it, it on Instagram being like, hey, cooking issues, look what I got. <laughs> oh, my God. It was awesome. Wow. Wow. It's like the new, that's like what we used to do in the record stores. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Jeez, Louise. He said you could borrow it, Dave. That makes oh, you feel oh, better. Oh, 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 thank you. Oh. Uh, you want to tell them the other bookstore we went to for the first time, both of us, because we're chumps, because oh. we're stupid? Bonnie Slotnick's down yeah. in East Village. Great store. Yeah, great store. Why have we not been? Because we're dumb? I think so, yeah. Great store. Yeah. Yeah. A lot and of out-of-print books. I know I'm not allowed to talk about it, but uh, I, I did talk to her about pie. Yes, you did. Uh, I also talked to her about my new micro-obsession with Guardian Serviceware vintage uh, aluminum uh, cooking and serveware. So if any of you, if I don't have time to today, which I probably won't, you won't. Uh, and you are interested in me waxing infinitively, you know, forever about uh, Guardian serviceware, then ask me a question and we can get to it on No Tangent once in the month Tuesdays. All right. Okay. Uh, from Castro by the Shore, uh, I, to me, I believe you own and use a Breville Polyscience Control Freak. Uh, I don't like the name though. You? You like that name? Control freak? No, no. Why really am I a freak? That. What makes me a freak? Mm. I mean, accurate, but care to share your favorite cooking programs or favorite way you use the freak? Uh, okay. Let me say this. So, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, the control freak, and this is going to come up later with um, others, because someone later in the in the show asked me about induction units for their kitchen during a remodel, but. The control freak is just a standard plug into the wall induction. When I say standard, I mean it takes a standard plug, like 110 or 120 U.S. voltage plug, plug into the wall. So it's limited to 1,800 watts of power, roughly. That's what you're limited to. How many watts you pull actually often, depending on the equipment, depends on the exact voltage that your, your house happens to get. And it's going to be somewhere between 110 and 125 in that range. RMS voltage, please. Don't get me. Don't get me. Don't get me. So... Um, so what's nice about the Control Freak is it's got a little dot in the center, like a spring-loaded dot, and, and that measures the temperature of the pan that you're using. And then it has kind of a standard induction uh, ring around it, and induction, of course, heats the pan directly by uh, – <clears throat> I'm not going to get into how induction works. Now, uh, what's nice about it is it's got, uh, you know, Philip Preston's PID, you know, temperature control algorithms built into it, and it's got a probe, so you can – you can control it based on the probe you can control it. and it's by far and away the most robust induction burner I've ever used and I'll we'll talk about that more in fact maybe I'll just combine them I'll combine them in right let's combine them where's the who asked the question on uh, on um, on um, Mark Siegman why don't you read it we're doing a kitchen remodel in late April and we'll be without use of the kitchen for six to eight weeks I need to buy a hot plate slash single burner I assume induction is the way to go, but do you have any brand recommendations that won't break the bank, i.e. no Breville control freak, or features that it ought to have? Thanks. Okay. So, now, I've always complained about the control freak, not because of the price, because full awareness, like, they used to have this, uh, remember that lady, Stas? The, their old brand rep, the Australian actress? Yeah. Yeah. So she sent me one. I was like, I think it was after... Oh, you didn't go with me. I was with Chris Young from Chef Steps, and they had their new uh, blender pitcher out. And she was like, this thing's indestructible. And so I put it on the concrete ground and started j literally jumping as high as I could and slamming on it. And, of course, I scraped the corner off of it because nothing's indestructible, which was my point to her. And it was early in the morning. I had not been drinking 
at all. I don't know what got into me, but I was hyped up to do my thing. So I was hyped up. You know what I mean? And she or was she like, loved it. She was, oh, she sent me a control freak. Yeah, true. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, and by the way, speaking of ruining Breville products, if you put your control freak right next to your high output gas, uh, you know, burner, stovetop, which I did, you will melt the side of your control freak. Now, my control freak still works like a champ. But it looks like uh, it looks like a Dali painting on the on the right side underneath. You know what I mean? Um, that said, if you did that to any normal induction thing, it would be toast. The the one of the complaints people have about the control freak is that it's too tall. It's too big, right? It takes up a lot more room on the counter, and that's because the failure mode of most induction units is they overheat. The electronics on the inside overheat. So the the control freak never overheats. It keeps going. And so this is answering kind of the second question first. I bought a, a cheap induction unit on um, the internet recently. I forget the exact brand name. I should have put it in my head before I came, but I, I didn't. I specifically bought it because one thing that the control freak can't do that really pisses me off is you can't set a wattage. You can't say, I want to dump 1,200 watts into this item. Right. And that's not necessarily useful for you, the average consumer, but it is useful for someone trying to write a cookbook and who is trying to equate induction units and gas units based on BTU outputs and relative efficiencies and trying to calculate relative efficiencies. It's very much useful for me to know exactly how many watts are putting in. But what I noticed was is that uh, as soon as this cheap induction, when I say cheap, like 60, 65 bucks, 70 bucks, as soon as it started to get warm at all, it was, wasn't putting out anywhere near the wattage that uh, it was rated to do and that it said it was putting out. Uh, so it was useless for me for calculations. Uh, I bought a, what's called a kilowatt meter where it's basically a plug that you plug into your plug and, that, and then it's got like a screen on it and then you plug whatever you want in and it registers how many watts you're using. You need to get one that's, you know, that'll work up to 1,800 watts, but, but there you go. So that's the one thing that kind of ticks me off about the... Um, about the Breville. The other thing is, is that uh, it has the ability to store programs, but the programs, uh, I've never used them. Uh, I think it's a real missed opportunity by Breville because they can do whatever they want, right? So you could set a particular ramp, to a temperature ramp, you could do all of this stuff and do really, really funky stuff with it. Um, but they don't really let you do that. They basically let you just do kind of simple programs. Huge, I think, missed opportunity. If you had like a, a desktop software and you could actually control this stuff, I think it would be amazing. And they could still do that because it's firmware upgradable. So for me, the USB key, I don't use programs. Um, I'll also tell you this. This is not published anywhere. The, what, the way that the induction, uh, the control freak has three settings, basically, of how fast it's going to heat your product. There is a slow, single-flame unit, a medium, double-flame unit, and a triple. Heat it fast, right? And what I re what people do, if you, I've done this, I've taken thermal imaging cameras and put a pan on, a, a cast iron pan, which heat very unevenly, despite what anyone tells you, they're the least even heating things on earth, unless you're heating it in the oven, in which case they heat very evenly because it's in an oven. But when you put it on an induction burner, you get a bright donut of overheated. And if you, if you put uh, a cast iron pan on an, uh, a Breville control freak and crank it on high fast and, and you do it to a high temperature, you'll see a ring where you've effed your uh, seasoning right where the induction thing is because that's how hard it can overheat because it's, it's powerful, right? Uh, 
Anyway, so I recommend, even if you're heating up to a high temperature, putting it on medium or even low for your cast iron. And then once it's at temperature, then you can move it up to fast so that it responds faster to adding food. Does that make sense, John? Yep. Okay. Uh, the other thing is, is that when you don't clean your sensor very well, there is a good five, six degrees difference between a clean sensor and a not clean sensor in what it's reading at the bottom of a pan as, as registered by how hot does it say when it's boiling water. They also know that the sensor is not going to be that uh, accurate. So 212, really it boils at about sensor temperature 210 on my unit. Anyway, in Fahrenheit. So the wattage on slow is 585 average watts, as measured by me in a kilowatt in my, in my plug. The medium is 1181 watts, and the high is 1735. The things that the control freak is awesome at that you can't do anything else is it's a monster at keeping your pressure cooker right at the right uh, level without having to worry about it, and then turning off when you want the pressure cooker to turn off so you just don't have to worry about it. I still sometimes bring it up to temperature on my regular stove, put it on the on the control freak, I walk away from it. It is the world's greatest thing for sweating onions, hands down, because you just set the temperature you want the onions to sweat. For me, that's like 230, somewhere in there. You walk away from it, stir it every once in a while, freaking genius. You want to be cheater? You want to do your artichokes? You want to do your you want to do your lightly crispy like carchofi in a pan, and you don't want to have to worry about it. Control freak because you can set exactly. It ramps right up to it, gets it going, steams it, pull it off, sizzle the bottom. It's a genius uh, thing with that. I do a lot of things like that. That's it, like or like reducing tomato sauce. Oh yeah, you never burn a tomato sauce when you're reducing it on the. Uh, in the control freak. So that's the kind of stuff that I like. Stuff where you want to not have to worry about scorching the bottom of it or you need a fairly accurate temperature. Is that a good answer? Great answer. All right. From Positive MD, uh, favorite pizza sauce recipe. I have a friend that's been making Neapolitan-style pizza, and it's been difficult for him to get more flavor slash sweetness in there without a lot of sugar. Uh, well, I, was, did this come in in time from Magoyan and we just missed it? We did, yeah, we just had too many questions. From the Magoyanator? Yeah. So uh, this morning I reread the Modernist Pizza section on it. Uh, by the way, I have not yet tried the Bianco de Napoli tomatoes, but I bought them. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I'll have to say I've been tasting, you know what Wiley likes from Stretch when he, he uses, a, what's it, Muti? Muti? You know that brand of tomatoes? Oh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, he uses that. I think tomato technology has come a long way since when I did my first deciding what I liked and what I hated way back in the day. It used to be that... I avoided like the plague any tomato packed in um, any tomato packed in puree, but I think there are good purees. It depends on whose puree it is. I remember the old the old ones I used to test and stuff. You remember how crappy at the FCI the the whole tomatoes in puree tasted? They tasted yeah. tasted like yeah, it tasted like you were sucking on like metal. It's yeah, garbage. Uh, I know a lot of people now also hate calcium being added to their tomatoes. It doesn't bother me. You guys have any? Because it's only a little bit. I don't taste the bitterness from the calcium, but. A firmer tomato doesn't bother me as long yeah. as it's moderate, moderate amounts. Um, so what they say, and what I agree with, is that nearly everybody makes uh, uh, their sauce with uh, canned tomatoes. Because unless you're growing your own tomatoes and only want to make pizza for one month of the year, you're going to use canned tomatoes. You know what I mean? Um, and if you don't, make sure you take the skins off because skins taste like garbage. Uh, they said something that was interesting. They believe that and this is kind of strange, right? They believe that Neapolitan... See, I don't have... They're cooking with ovens that are hot enough. And since I unhot rotted my oven, my oven's not that hot anymore. My oven's now just like a 550 oven, like a, like a chump, like a jerk, like a weasel, Weak. like yep. a nothing. Weakness. 
I mean, I might as well, I might as well just like, I might as well just like, I don't know, put my put my head through this glass window and walk home. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because that's all I deserve. Yep. With my five hundred and fifty degree oven, like a chump. Anyway, uh, so they say with a real Neapolitan style that they actually prefer get this a thinner sauce. Hmm. Thinner sauce. Thinner sauce. Um, so for sweetness, though, you care about sweetness. And the reason they say that is because uh, I guess they're not putting very much on and that it's so hot that it flashes off a lot of sauce and they're not putting that much on. Whereas things that are, if it, you know, things that are cooking longer, they have it a little bit thicker because otherwise, you know, it'll make that gum layer at the bottom with a lower temperature. I don't even know if I believe that in all applications. At a 550 oven, I like a fairly thick sauce, very smallish amount of a, of a, of a kind of a thick sauce. And I always, my standard is if I have a lot of time and I feel like wasting energy, I will... I will use uh, whole tomatoes, I will crush them up, and then I will cook them down by about half, adding oregano and garlic and whatnot, whatever I want. I like anchovies in my sauce. You guys have anchovies? Mm-hmm. I like, I it, it, I like yeah. anchovies in my sauce. I do. I like it. It's good. Yeah, like, you have to judge your people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I love anchovies in a sauce. They just add so much richness. Anyway, then you cook it down. But really, most of the time, what I do is is you use just the whole tomatoes, you reserve the juice, and then you add paste to get the texture where you want it. Lightly marry it together with heat, with the garlic and whatever you know herbs you're going to do. And then if you make it too thick, you dope back the juice from the can. I think that's what I do. I think that's what most people do. And, and if you're using paste, paste is so sweet that you only have to add like a little bit of uh, sugar, right? So I find that like I add more sugar to like shaksuka and things like that because... I'm adding a lot of pepper and other stuff to it and a lot of paprika that brings kind of bitter notes, even though it's Swedish. It brings kind of uh, – not Swedish, Swedish brings those notes back in. Um, I don't know. Hopefully this has been moderately helpful. Um, okay. This also – I think we – didn't we talk about Matt from Mystic's question on proofing with McGoy? We asked him and he said just push it. Isn't that what happened? Push it. I don't remember. I don't – Think it was satisfactorily answered, but if you think we did, uh, then uh, if you don't think it's if you don't think it's satisfactorily answered, well, then it's not, um, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, yeah. Let's try and let's try and do it. And we don't want to. You don't want to leave Matt from Mystic hanging. No, definitely not. Right. Matt from Mystic uh, wrote in: uh, Is there? And this goes back to the Magoyanator Courier. Uh, is there a more precise slash scientific method to determine when a loaf is ready to bake besides the finger dent test? Sometimes I feel like single loaf responds differently from pressing it in different places. Okay, well, <clears throat> that's an interesting question. Um, but any quote-unquote scientific test that you would use is going to have the same problems because it's just going to be something. It's going to be like some sort of electronic finger going, pushing it a very specific amount and going and pulling back. And in fact, if you look at um, – um, um, look, they have good tech at the Modernist Cuisine people, right, including like full scanners. And so like I was talking with Harold McGee once. I was like going over the scanned pictures from Modernist Bread of like the – where they're measuring loaf volume. And I've been measuring loaf volume. But the fact of the matter is if you cut open a loaf and you see that it's got one big giant bubble, right, that one bubble – doesn't tell you much about the crumb in general. It, it, most of the time it means that when you were shaping and forming, right, just you captured a big air bubble where you were laminating it over, that thing didn't fully seal in, it expands out, right? It can be due to rupture, but that's different. You know the difference. You, can, you all can hear what I'm saying and understand the difference between one big bubble and like coalesced 
smaller yeah. bubbles, right? And so when you're pushing on a loaf of bread, and I've just read, by the way, countless exceedingly boring documents on uh, bread, bread proofing technology, right? Um, how it's formed, the moisture level, like, you know, uh, how well it was covered when it was rising is going to mean that it is going to be very different at different and how you've shaped it is going to be different at different parts. So what I do is I usually push it in like two places and see what's going on. Uh, and by the way, no one will give you a really good answer on what happens when you actually overproof. You want to, you guys want to know in, in, briefly, Stas, if, briefly, may I? Yep. Okay. Uh, Mixing is incredibly important when you are making the dough because that's where all the bubbles are actually put into the dough in the mixing and then when you're forming and if you do any work of the dough while it's while it's in bulk right before you before you shape it. That's where actually all of the small bubbles are in there. So even though a dough looks like it doesn't have bubbles in it, that's when all the kind of bubbles get put into it. You, the yeast doesn't make bubbles, right? The yeast inject like makes gas that leaks into the bubbles and inflates it when you're baking bread right there is a race what happens is is as uh the bread is baking the bubbles inside expand and then at a certain point they break right and when they break then the bubbles can talk to each other and that's why bread can bake so quickly once they break though there's no more expansion because the expansion right is done inside of sealed bubbles so what you want is those bubbles to break at exactly the right time and part of that is the flour you use part of that is the gluten you have and the amount of gluten that's been developed part of that is the temperature of the oven right but if you overproof those bubbles have started to coalesce before you bake. And if those bubbles start to coalesce or if the gas walls in the bubbles is too thin before you bake, then you can't get any rise out of the oven because the cells will just coalesce on the, on the inside before they rise. So that's really what happens when you kind of overproof, which is why if you knock it down and make those bubbles kind of small again, you can bring the loaf back and kind of erase proof as long as it hasn't turned to a bad flavor or gone slack because it's been fermented too long. Is all this making any? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's what you're trying to do. A, a very properly oven-springed loaf is proofed such that when it expands, and this is why everyone tells you it's better to underproof than overproof because the bubbles are already there and they will expand, right? And then when they hit the right temperature, which if you get it just right, it breaks right as the gluten is getting firm, right as the starch is getting stretchy, and it can hold its shape creepy they pup they puff they break it allows the bread to cook real really quickly and then that you get great bread that's that's the answer all right much better answer than when magoya was on good job well, it's because i you know yeah that's my opinion not magoya's opinion yeah, no no i know but that's why yeah. if he wants he can have someone listen to this yeah. and then he can write his response and tell me i'm wrong no that's a satisfactory answer all right it's been deleted alex godin has a non-pizza question which must have come in during magoya times yep can you talk about residential versus kitchen of ventilation and any considerations I should make when selecting a hood? We are buying an apartment where we may be able to install a hood, and I'm trying to get it right so I don't set off the smoke detector all the time. Oh, my God. I'm going to save the majority of this for uh, – I'm going to save the majority of this um, – for when Hoffman comes on, because for those of you that, for those Americans who aren't paying attention to the world coffee scene, he's like coffee master guru genius from uh, uh, UK. UK. But I've been, I've been doing roasting again, and so I've been testing force cooling of my roast because when you roast coffee, it makes a lot of smoke if you don't have like a 
We were having a meeting at your apartment once, and you were doing it, and somebody called uh, the super on you, and they came and checked because there was so much smoke coming out of your window. They thought your apartment was on fire. Yeah, nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you like the ACDC song, Houses on Fire? I do, even though most people hate that that whole era of ACDC. I enjoy it. Uh, so, anywho, uh, I was experimenting with ways of rapidly... Uh, cooling it in the roaster to not have to generate the smoke. And we've just installed new cooking detectors in my house, even though we're in a fireproof building. And the cooking detector went off when I did a, I was trying to do a side-by-side of cooled versus not cooled to taste the difference and say, so Jen's like, if you can't do it without setting off the smoke detectors, you can't do it. And you know what? Fair. Because setting off the smoke detectors, for as much as I don't mind smoke, uh, it really does ruin everything in the house. That layer of garbage that 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 settles down on yeah. top of everything. Like when, like a couple of weeks ago, when I used a quote unquote smokeless Korean barbecue tabletop grill, and my kids almost cracked their heads on the table because when they got up, the layer of grease on the floor next to the table was so thick that it was like a, it was like the goddamn ice rink. Anyway. Uh, Here's the issue about ventilation at home. I am very much for ventilation at home, good ventilation at home. And I think that I can't wait for the day when people require it and when it's built in. The problem is uh, in recommending to you hoods, right, is that I would say the vast majority of people who listen to this show and do things based on what we say in the show are in this weird in-between zone, right? So – you know, you're not an occasional home cook who, you know, you know, just needs a little bit of ventilation. And you're also not a restaurant with a deep fat fryer, a rationale combi oven and a flat top griddle grinding all, all day. And the problem is there are very clear regulations for home and the clear regulations for home are just that the duct, uh, you know, needs to be a single layer duct work so nothing can get caught and that if you go over 400 CFM uh, that you need to um, you need to have makeup air now why do you need to have makeup air you might ask yourself so in my apartment and I don't know Alex maybe in your apartment right the closest thing to a boiler a gas fired boiler is like a mile and a half away because we get steam pumped into our house so a negative pressure situation in my house is a zero risk phenomenon for me zero risk if you live in a house or if you live in a place where you have a gas water heater or an oil burner right and you suck a negative pressure in your um, in your kitchen, you can reverse the flow of ventilation for your boiler or for your uh, heater. And when you do that, you're sucking carbon monoxide into your house, and that can kill you, even not in the kitchen, right? So this is why, you know, this is why the regulation. Now, in an apartment where literally, like I say, there's nothing around me, I don't care, right? But that's something to think about. That's why you have to have makeup air in the kitchen when, or in something directly connected to the kitchen when you're running higher than 400 CFM because there's a risk. And if in, you know, the newer smoke detectors have carbon monoxide detectors as well, but carbon monoxide will kill you dead without you knowing for sure. Um, now, the other thing is, is that in, in a commercial kitchen where they're doing a lot of frying, right, they have Ansel systems and there's lots of regulations, right, because um, – what you're doing is is you're putting grease into a duct. 
And the grease can drip out of the duct at, at poorly sealed seams. It drips out of the fan. If you've ever gone on top of an incorrectly cleaned roof, like a, uh, where, the, where the exhaust fans are, you can see the black grease dripping out of the cage on the sides if they haven't cleaned their ductwork properly. And a real commercial hood has uh, grease uh, like um, filters right, to stop the grease. But no matter how good those grease filters are, your duct is going to fill with uh, grease. Uh, over time. It just, it happens. It needs to be clean. And in home, you don't do that, right? So if you were going to be at home and you put a real hood in, like, you know, like I, like I have done, right? You need to keep it clean because uh, what happens is, is you're sitting there, you either make a mistake or you do your little flambe McGillicuddy, right? And you don't have an Ansel system at home. So what happens is, is um, the... <laughs> The flame goes up, and if you should by chance ignite the grease on the inside of your ductwork, it is game over because what you have is a very highly oxygenated system. So what what happens in a commercial kitchen is they actually leave the exhaust on. The Ansel system leaves the exhaust on, but they turn off the makeup air to try to choke out the fire, and they leave the exhaust on to get the smoke out. But in your situation, if you just have the thing going and you keep getting fresh air into it, you're stoking a fire inside of a tube that's burning on grease, and they can get well over 1,000 degrees Celsius and melt ductwork and light crap on fire. So like, you know, you got to make sure that you can a that your ductwork is adequately sealed, that it's adequately cleaned and that nothing touching it can catch on fire. And that when you and that imagine a, a, a fire breathing dragon shooting, shooting fire out of the side of your building where you're ducting to. And if that's going to catch anything on fire, think about it. Here's one more thing I'll say about this. Uh, if you do something that is not legal, now I looked it up. There is no maximum CFM on a home unit. If you have, but if you do something that is untoward and you uh, burn the place down, your insurance may not pay. So what I think is there needs to be new kind of guidance and regulation for you know greater than you know normal home hoods because the average home hood is without worth. Uh, wait. I've been t- I'm being told by Joe Hazen that we're going to go to a commercial break. This episode of Cooking Issues brought to you by Aura King Salmon, our favorite fish. Today we have Michael Fabro from Aura King to tell us more about it. You know, we raise what we think is the best salmon in the world down in New Zealand. Uh, I would agree. I believe that this uh, Aura King Salmon is delicious. And I'm not just saying that because you're a sponsor. You're a sponsor because we love the product. Aura King is grown, even though it's a very high-fat content, it's grown without adding too much stuff to food to the water. So you're not getting big algal plumes and stuff, right? I mean, this is stuff that you've verified. Yeah, so king salmon will eat until they're satiated, and we actually have underwater cameras to watch the salmon eat. So as soon as they stop taking the feed, we'll shut it off, and that prevents any excess feed from getting in the water or sinking to the bottom. And also, our farm density is really critical. We operate at a density of 2% salmon to 98% water. That allows us to uh, maintain an equilibrium state. So any fish waste that will go to the seabed will naturally compost with the organisms down there. So we're able to operate in the steady state where you don't have an accumulation of waste on the bottom. Aura King Salmon. Follow them on Instagram at Aura King Salmon. Everybody's favorite fish. And we're back. Uh, hey, Stas, so what do you think? Should, uh, when, you know, instead of the cookbook, should the memoir be fish waste or should the memoir be uh, uh, stop taking the feed? For you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, fish waste. Fish waste? Yeah. yeah. What would your memoir be? 
Oh, I don't know. No? You don't know? No. Come on, you must have given it some thought. No. Huh. What about you, John? Yeah. I don't know. I used to be a PhD. I used to be a professor. Uh, but hold up, a quick question just came in on the Discord based off the ad. Josh says, so thinking of pulling the trigger on some Aura King salmon and having a salmon party, how should I cook that bad boy and with what? First of all, salmon party. So when uh, my cousin Ridge, not my sister-in-law, my cousin Ridge, he, he's, a, he's a gym head. He's like, he's like a strong, he's a personal trainer, uh, but not like the jerky kind. Like he's cool. You know what I mean? Attractive dude. Uh, anyway, so like when he used to go to the gym, there was a guy that used to just go up to him all the time and just say, Friday party, Friday party. So anytime someone says something party, in my head, all I hear is Friday party. Got it. Friday party. He never partied with that guy because he thought he was the weirdest dude on earth. Yeah. So he never actually partied with it. But my whole family, you say blah, party. They're like, Friday party. Whole family. Friday party. So uh, what was the question? How would you cook uh, salmon for a salmon party? <laughs> okay. First of all, there are infinity ways to answer this question. The, the, it, it, w- what are you doing? Cold prep? Listen, at a party, I think cold, people like cold prep. What do you think, John? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Works. Yeah. So for a cold prep, I don't have the numbers offhand. I tested, uh, I tested for the book every number between 47 Celsius and uh, 60 Celsius on cold prep. Okay? The trick for cooking it, the trick for cooking salmon is I think you should stay somewhere in the 50-52 range. Anything higher than that, and even with salting it, which you need to... I put salt and sugar on it, or you can soak it in salt and sugar for a little while. Reason being that it helps maintain the white goop on the inside of the salmon, right? Uh, you, know what I, you know what I actually did? It was fun. Here's the other, here's the other thing. Can I, can I say? Here's the other thing. Uh... The problem with the cold prep is, is that you really don't cook it to pasteurize it. You really don't, right? So, like, what if you're gonna like cook it and then chill it? You just have to be aware that you're not killing all the bacteria in it. You just have to be cool. You have to be cool with that. You know what I mean? Uh, you know what a fun cold prep is? Is to cut the cut it cut it down like into two like like tall isosceles triangles. Meat glue, roll it. Right. And then uh, I did a thing. The nori gets soft. Right. That's fine. Then I rolled it in nori and then in uh, in like cucumber fish scales and then rolled it and cooked it right in a tube. So it, and then you slice it and then you take the slices off and it's like, you know, it's pretty nice. And you serve it with like a with like a tzatziki kind of a situation. And uh, it was really good. Um, or like I say, just do a, a cold prep or. I mean, it's fatty enough, that sucker, that you could just kind of grill it up. But you're going to notice that the Aura King doesn't have a lot of, like, gaping in it. That's why, because it's firm. So, it, you know, it'll hold up, unlike some lower quality salmons. I also think it's really fun to cure it yourself. And I think we've given it on the air before. If not, ask for it again. We'll give you the, you know, uh, I use a standard 2-1 salt, sugar. Uh, I add a little smoke powder to it. This way you don't have to smoke. And I can give you that recipe if you want. That's a three-day situation, but then you're like, I cure my own salmon. Suck it. And then you have the part. If you if you cure your own salmon and then you bust out your own bagels 
And then, you know, they're not even going to be, they're not even going to ask you about the provenance of your cream cheese. Clearly, Russ and Daughter's cream cheese is the best. And this is why I've never even tried to make my own because they wouldn't tell me how they made it. And I just haven't really entered into the cream cheese thing. You ever made cream cheese, any of you guys? I have not, no. Do you, who no. here has had Russ and Daughter's cream cheese? Yeah. Best? Yeah. Yeah, Great. of course. Joe, Russ and Daughter's cream cheese. It doesn't keep. Don't it does buy not, it to yeah. keep it. doesn't keep. Yeah. But today, the best. So anyway... Oh, one more thing. If you're going to cure the, uh, if you're going to cure the, um, the uh, Aura King, I recommend not trying to slice it whole. I recommend skinning it, uh, salt, sugaring, and then putting in a 375 flat convection oven on a, on a parchment, the skin, crisping the skin up, serving it separately, and then busting the uh, filet into the top belly, cure them separately. It's going to be very hard for you to slice it at home the way they slice it if you're not if you're not trained. So I, I cure my stuff in pieces and slice them separately. How's that? Was that it? That was excellent. All right, we got 19 minutes left, and let's get these nine questions out. All right, Brian Yurko, what? Was a minute per question? No, like two minutes. About two, yeah. And we just wasted some time. You didn't even give me a memoir title. I thought you were going to bust in Go. with a good <laughs> memoir title. Go. What about you, Jackie Molecules? What's your what's your What's your what's your memoir? Uh, I, I don't know. Molecule Life. Anyway, no. Give me the <laughs> give me the title. I want all of your freaking memoirs. Mine's Fish Waste. All right. Brian Yurko writes in. A friend of mine just took over as the corporate pastry chef for an NYC uh, vegetarian, vegan, gluten free restaurant and bakery group. All of the previous pastry chef's recipes include minor amounts of steam, five to fifteen percent. Uh, An extravagant pre-programmed rationale combi baking presets, five to six different temperatures, steam, fan, speed changes for a single bake for items like cookies, quick breads, and muffins. Do you think small amounts of steam will make a big difference in baking cookies and quick breads? Thanks, Brian. Uh, Ooh, Goulash Riot, the name. Goulash Riot. Yep. You know what I haven't had in a long time? Goulash. Goulash. Like goulash. Anyway. uh, Look. Short answer, a lot depends on exactly how the steam injection works, right? So, like, when you say small amount, you're like, I'd have to measure it. I'm finding, I've been measuring my ANOVA, uh, actually measuring wet bulb and doing all this, and all of the stuff does make a difference, right? So, for instance, breads are appreciably moister when they're reheated at 350 with 50% steam than not, right? Uh, Appreciably, right? Uh, and and I'm working very hard to try to actually suss out what's happening because the literature on steam injection above uh, 212, above 100 Celsius, is very hard to figure out what what's going on. And so uh, I'm still trying to figure it out, and when I figure it out, I'll let you know. But uh, in general, I find that when people are coming up with recipes – what they do is they make a tweak, they like it better, they keep the tweak. Then they make another tweak, they like it better, they keep the tweak. They make another tweak, they like it better, they keep the tweak. If you then just remove all the tweaks, you might actually like the product still, right? And then maybe you could do one or two tweaks and get it to work the way that you want, right? With cookies, it depends on the cookie. So I can't really answer your question because with cookies, it's all about controlling the spread and the surface of the cookie, getting it to inflate and deflate properly, depending on which one you're going to do. And steam can affect all of those things. But they're also easily changed by changing the recipe that you use. Um, I don't know. Is that an okay answer? I mean, not really helpful, but... Perfectly okay. Sargon, friend of the show, wrote in, uh, what coolant should I use for my Rotovap chiller? 
Uh, and uh, I answer that off the off the airline. The answer is glycol and water. The answer is glycol and water. I didn't answer it on the show. I answered it offline. Glycol, water. Just while you're doing that, then uh, you mentioned adding glycerin to add body to. Oh, never mind. Glycol, glycerin, different. Sorry, keep going. Yeah. Do yep. not add nope, yep. propylene glycol to your drinks. Definitely don't substitute ethylene glycol for propylene glycol, one food grade, one not. And if you're going to use a rotovap, anyone that flies rotovaps will tell you, add some food coloring to that son of a gun. It is impossible to see flow. Uh, once there's food coloring, you can kind of tell it's flowing, but add some food coloring. Uh, okay. So, and then a separate question from Sargon. Uh is using a freeze-dried culture. How are any organisms alive in a freeze-dried culture? I don't know. I don't know how that works, actually. Why they, why they survive. I don't know. Uh, well, next time we get a biochemist on, we'll ask them. Yeah. And then he has another question. What's These that? three questions stacked into one. What is it? So many. Give me the question. <clears throat> and follow-up question from today's show. Is there really any difference between viscosity and body? In addition, is there a better way to talk about it in a quantifiable manner, say Stokes? Well, there's also no such thing as like a single viscosity number. That's why it's like it's like measured in a certain way, right? So it's like uh, there's kinematic viscosity. There's uh, you know there, there's different ways to measure kind of uh, viscosity. So it depends on what you're interested in, right? So in general, in the field, a lot of times viscosity is measured with uh, different cups. Like one that I have at home is called a Zahn cup, where you, you put it in and then you literally count how long it takes to uh, drip until the drip breaks, right? And so there's various different ways to measure different kinds of uh, viscosity. Some people have like very fancy machines that will stir at a specific rate and measure how hard it is for, to stir it at a specific rate. Uh, but then if you change the rate, the numbers change, right? And so and you just have to choose a system. Really, it makes a difference only for people who need to be 100% repeatable, right? You know, like uh, like if you're making large quantities of sauce that need to stay pumpable and, you know, th these kinds of things. Or, you know, if you get your viscosity wrong, all of a sudden the, the batter flies off of your chicken when you're frying it, right? But in general, like those discussions aren't so much important for the average home cook. Uh, I mean, to me, body is more than viscosity, right? Wouldn't you say so, John? Body's more than viscosity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 I, really know I can't really describe it. it. Yeah, exactly. It's like somebody else asked, somebody else asked the general discord, crispy versus crunchy. I have had people give me satisfactory answers, but those satisfactory answers instantly evaporate from my head, and the fact that they evaporate leads me to believe that I didn't believe what they said to begin with. Does that make sense? Because yeah. if I believed it, it would have stuck. If I don't believe it, it evaporates. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, all right. From Oxy. Uh, hydrocolic question. Are there any good thermo-irreversible, i.e. non-meltable gels for high heats that are not the boutique methyl cells uh, you mentioned Tylos. I don't. I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about it. Never. I don't know. I don't know because I find those really hard to cast. Uh, I want to make hot shapes. What about that as a memoir? Who wants hot shapes as their memoir? I mean, no. You don't nope. take, no. No. one's taking yeah, hot no. shapes. Hot shapes. No. What if it's said like that? Hot shapes. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Uh, no. You're going to want to use low acyl, uh, low acyl uh, methocell. Uh, sorry, sorry. Low acyl gelan. Uh, that's Kelcogel uh, F. Don't use uh, the high acyl one, the native one. First of all, the low acyl one is clear and brittle, like, uh, like, you know, it's clear and brittle, like agar kind of, 
texture-wise, but clear. And you can add things to it. Like if you add, uh, I forget what the one that you want to add. Like I forget whether it's not, I think it's LBG because Guar has an interaction. I, oh, or is it the other way around? I, I had a bunch of fun interactions where I literally purposely effed with the function, but I don't remember. It's been so many years. But you can soften them a little bit. But th- those won't melt. High acyl uh, gel in will melt. Low acyl will not. Make sure low acyl, calcul gel F, if that doesn't work, hit me back. From Lord Naboo, uh, made an attempt, adapted Dr. J the other evening. I used Kevin Costa's recipe for acid-adjusted orange a super juice, and it was delicious. What's Dave's opinion on the super juice thing? So I, I looked up the, the, the video that you sent, and what, what it is is... Um, Basically using acid instead of sugar to do an oleosaccharum, right? Which is not a bad idea. And then I guess watering it and adding adding juice. Uh, and then he makes some claims in there that I w- wasn't able to verify. Like he says succinic, succinic acid, which is one of the you know, three acids in, in lime juice, which I did a lot to actually publicize early on. Succinic acid is what gives lime juice its characteristic kind of reality of taste as opposed to just malic and citric, but it's incredibly unpleasant. So in the video on its own, in, but if you little bits of it make fake lime juice taste so much more real. Uh, so in the video, he says that that's actually what causes lime juice to oxidize and the succinic causes oxidation. I don't really think I wasn't, I'm not going to say he's wrong. It's just, I wasn't able to find any data that he was right. Right. So someone please send me that information if you have it. Um, I will say, though, that that weird kind of bloody, crazy flavor that succinic acid has can mimic the flavors of kind of off lime juice. So in essence, what the lime juice here is, is the super juice is, is it's juice done with peel. So kind of halfway to an oleo. Oleos last longer uh, than regular juices do, bolstered with real juice. And you don't notice that the real juice is, is turning off because there's a lot of other liquid in it. So I don't know. I have to taste it. I've never done it, never used it. But, you know, I know oleos last a lot longer. And I have done acid adjusted oleo juices and used them for quite a while. Also, OJ in general lasts longer than lime juice. Is this an okay answer or no? Great answer. Chevron Hubbard writes in, a friend like the squash or like the writer? I... Mm. Uh, You like a Hubbard squash? Don't know if I'm familiar. Uh Let me see. Uh, A friend has requested a butterscotch-infused tequila and a cocktail to use it in. My approach would be to treat it as a fat wash, but at a loss for what to make with it. Any ideas would be a big help. Thanks. Yo, with something like butterscotch, I mean, you could... Look, we used to do like a hot buttered rum thing, like cold, cold buttered rum. And we did some of those that ha- like with some brown butter, some butterscotchy stuff. But I think if someone wants butterscotch, they're going to want it to taste kind of like a cream soda. I would stay with the Alexandery style specs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although, ugh, a tequila Alexander, no. Now that I look at it, tequila. Tequila Alexander, no thanks. I'm trying to think, what would butterscotch tequila taste like? Why would butterscotch tequila? Kind of vegetable tequila notes and butterscotch. I'm not feeling it, Chevron. Yeah. I don't know. Is anyone feeling it? Uh, look. No. Yeah. I love to be wrong. Make a vial of this product. Send it our way. We'll taste it on air. And we'll we'll talk about it. We'll try to figure out what, what we think it's good for. All yeah. right? But, like, I was with you. I was like, oh, butterscotch, blah, blah. And then I reread tequila. I don't know how I feel. Unless it's an extremely neutral tequila, in which case, then why tequila? Okay. Uh, this one from Kim Yardi Ferre. Well, that's how it's said to pronounce it. I hope I got it right. 
How do you pronounce it with the French? Give me some French. I don't know if he's French. But no, but it's it's written like it's pronounced French. Kim Yardy Ferré, if that's yeah, it. Right, right, yeah, right, right. That's why we have you around, dude. Yeah, thanks. No other reason. reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's your recommended temps for roasting chicken? This is a complicated thing, Kim, that you're doing here. I'm thinking 300 Celsius. Give me that in Fahrenheit. That's like a lot. 572. Yeah, it's roughly infinity. I'm thinking 300 C for 15 minutes in my pizza oven, then slow cook at 90 C, so under, for three hours in my rotisserie oven, then resear for 20 minutes at 200 C, which is like 450 or something. Uh, but I'm sure you've given this more thought than I have. I read long ago that Heston Blumenthal recommends 120 all the way through and then deep fry to sear only at the end. All right, listen. The magic secret is that... Once the temperature of the chicken skin goes over 100 degrees Celsius, then uh, the inside of the chicken is going to cook at 100 degrees, no matter what, right? So uh, manipulating the outside temperature is really just about manipulating the skin, period. So in general, what I do, and the rotisserie is good at this, is control the radiation that, that, that is hitting it. So if you have a rotisserie oven, right, real rotisserie, it's probably got a lot higher incident radiant heat like that. So even if the air temperature is 90, right, then the rotisserie skin, this is why rotisserie is a great way to make a chicken. And in fact, there's no need to do all of this massive re-searing ahead of time. Like the rotisserie, it's like, you know, if it's getting too brown, you can just pull it away from the radiant heat and let it keep going until it gets in. But it's really an, kind of an ideal way to do it. If I had a rotisserie, I would cook my chickens in a rotisserie. I like rotisserie chicken. What do you guys say about rotisserie chicken? Yeah, delicious. Yeah. Great. If you're roasting it in a conventional yeah. oven, which it sounds like you're not, nice thing about a pizza oven is because it's so hot, you can get radiation all the way around it. But most people, when they put their chicken in the oven, they... Uh, for the pan dripping, what happens is is that you lose almost all radiant heat off the pan because it fills with liquid. That liquid doesn't get too hot. And then, in essence, there's no browning of the underneath of your bird. So you want to lift the bird up so that it can see the oven walls all the way around. You don't want to get it too close to the top of your oven because if it's too close to the top of your oven, it's going to uh, scorch there. Not a huge problem if you just uh, aluminum foil it. Uh, like that'll kind of like – but you have to keep an eye on it. Is this, any of these answers any good? Yeah. All right. Rob Pascoe, in the last episode, you mentioned adding glycerin to add body to a whiskey highball. What percentage glycerin would you start at? Uh, you know what? I should know this, but I just make sure that I don't go over about five mils per drink, right? Uh, I just I usually add it by eye, and I usually add closer to five mils per two drinks. I mean, I would say that I add less than a percent. Like, uh, in general, somewhere between 1% and 2%. I, I made that up, but just do it by eye and taste it. Uh, Mark Siegman, we're doing a kitchen remodel. Uh, we did, we did this one. We did it. All right. Good. Now we have the two Discord topics that people want you to weigh in on. What's that? What are your thoughts on crispy versus crunchy? Uh, when we talked about this, I don't know. If I knew, if I knew, I think crispy, I so, like, so, so like, <sighs> like a baguette is crispy and a Sullivan's loaf is crunchy on the outside. Mm. Crunchy means thicker. It goes crunch. Yeah. Like a Dorito is crunchy. And a th this is what I was told by someone. A Dorito is crunchy, and one of those thin laser wise chips is crispy. I like that. Yeah. It came back to me. That's perfect, actually. Yeah. yeah. That works. Forget who said that to me. Thank you. Uh, and then one more. Okay. General one. This topic has actually blown up. Um, 
I had a sandwich-related question that might require a diagram, but when eating a sandwich or a burger slash burgaloid, do we grab the sandwich front-facing, thumbs on the bottom of the sandwich, bending elbows to bring it to the face, or inverted, overhand grip, fingers on the plate bottom up. side of the sandwich, flipping it 180 to bring it to the face? No. Does the latter insult the sandwich maker by inverting the order of ingredients? Insults God. <laughs> like... I mean, like, you, you pick it up, you eat it, and if the bottom sogs out, blame the person that made it. Yeah. If it yep. has started to sog out, then you can flip it on your plate, but you have to put a look of disgust on your face because you have been done wrong. That's my point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, also, that question depends on whether you're eating alone or with someone you're trying to, you know, maintain some sort of humanity in front of. You know what I'm saying? Sure. What are your thoughts on the tiny bun that all the stuff extrudes out of? No. No. Yeah. This is why, you know what I really enjoy? The oversized English muffin. Remember when remember when Thomas's was like, you know what? We're gonna make an oversized English muffin. We know you guys want to put burgers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh my my mother in law makes a lot of English muffins. I'm gonna ask her to make some burger sized ones. I like English muffins. Yeah, they're good. Good product. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mike Henderson writes in, I have a question about stirring wand. That, uh, what is the actual mechanism that speeds up chilling and diluting? Is it the friction between the ice, liquid, and glass that speeds up melting, or is it simply pushing all the liquid into contact with the surface of the ice or a combination of both? Not the friction. It's just a, it's just a convection. For, you're just increasing the massively the convective uh, uh, heat transfer ratio. Um, when I uh, do bartender trainings, uh, I say it's a combination, but I'm a 100, not 100% certain, so I thought I would ask. Love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Listen, the wattage when you're stirring, the wattage is extraordinarily low. Like frictional heating uh, is a huge factor in a Vita prep because you're dumping hundreds of watts of power at thousands of RPM. But in a, in a, in a, you know, in a regular stirring kind of a situation, the wattage is like exceedingly low. And all frictional heat, uh, you would notice based on the power you're putting into it. Was that a decent answer? Yeah. Kyla Ruder writes in, hey, Dave, is there a way to find the individual citric malic acid levels of an ingredient so that we know the amounts to add in order to replicate the acidity of other components, such as limes? Basically, I'm looking for what a fruit offers naturally as a starting point to mimic the lime acidity. Thanks. In general, I look at the USDA's published uh, fruit numbers for single-strength juices, and then uh, and then that's how I go. I just look on the internet and pray that I get it right. Uh, all right, I'll try to get one more in a day. Joe Waterhouse, hey Dave, I've been thinking about tap cocktails for a while now, and I wondered if you could, uh, wait, I wonder if you could to me, I don't understand the question, you, John, you get that one there. Alan uh, Cardellano wrote in, hey Dave, hope you're well, can I ask you a question? I've infused rum with coconut cake, coconut flakes, and pineapple skin. What is the base for the clarified painkiller milk punch? It came out absolutely, and deli- oh, which is the base? It came out delicious and super clear, but as soon as I add ice or even keep it in the fridge, it will go cloudy. Do you think it is the egg in the cake or the oil in the coconut? I would guess it's the oil in the coconut. Should I fat wash it before I milk wash? I wish I had made a rotovap. I wish I had a rotovap, thanks. Yeah, try that, but just let it get cloudy, my friend. Just let it get cloudy. Cooking issues.